Hey Nick, so I've been using the OBG project a lot recently to help me remember some of the GYN things that I started to forget after my first year of MFM fellowship and also on a lot of the primary care stuff like on today's episode for asthma and pregnancy. Yeah, you know, as these oral boards draw closer to us, Faye, I worry more and more about my ability to remember some of these things, but thankfully the OBG project literally fits in my pocket and I can pull it up on my phone with my library from OBG first find everything that I need and have probably forgotten. And if you are a fourth year resident, you can get one year of OBG first absolutely free. You just go ahead and enter um, your email and let them know who you are and they'll get back to you to let you get that subscription service. You can head over to our website, reagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you can get signed up for OBG first. Alright guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Coffee. So today we're going to tackle a topic that I'm surprised, Faye, that we haven't touched on before, um, but that is asthma in pregnancy. What are our learning objectives? So today we are going to talk about how to diagnose asthma both in and out of pregnancy. We'll discuss um, severity of asthma and how this can potentially change in pregnancy. And finally, we'll talk about the treatment of asthma in pregnancy, both as an outpatient and in the acute setting. So Nick, let's start off. Um, what is asthma? Yeah. So asthma is a common disorder as i'm sure our listeners are aware um but it's disorder of the lungs where inflammation causes the bronchi to swell and then narrow the airways or in a medical simple term for all of that bronchospasm this causes reversible recurrent airway obstruction and the symptoms that are associated with asthma are the things again that you think of and you always probably ask about and learns this as a med student right wheezing shortness of breath difficulty breathing and there can be associations of asthma with triggers particularly at night or during exercise or even with allergens um, things like mold smoking pollen um, or with infection that can cause this to worsen acutely the diagnosis of asthma again starts off with the history right so you're listening for all of these things from your patient the wheezing the cough the shortness of breath chest tightness, all of those temporal relationships and triggers. And with your physical exam, the things you want to listen for are wheezes on auscultation. Um, I know it's probably been a while, um, maybe for us in OB land, since you've put a stethoscope on somebody's back and listened to lung sounds. But you really should, um, particularly at the outset of pregnancy with someone who has asthma and get a good sense for what their lungs sound like and what their wheezing sounds like. Asthma ideally should be confirmed by demonstrating reversible airway obstruction on spirometry, or at least partially reversible airway obstruction, in the presence of a bronchodilator like albuterol. Pulmonary function tests, um, sort of the things to know if you're ever so curious about this, are that we should see a 12% or greater increase in the forced expiratory volume in one second after receiving a bronchodilator. And the FVC, just as another sort of ratio in lung world, is forced vital capacity. So if you can think back to medical school, you remember that that forced expiratory volume or FEV1 in one second can be calculated with a ratio over the forced vital capacity known as the FEV1 over the FVC. And a normal value for someone with that is around 75%, though this is 
a predicted value that can vary based on the age, sex, and height of the patient. Asthma is an obstructive process, so the FEV1 is ultimately going to be reduced overall, right? And so again, if we see with bronchodilator improvement in the FEV1, we know that that's reversible. The FEV1 to FVC ratio in asthma will be reduced as it's an obstructive process again. Restrictive processes, on the other hand, which asthma is not, do not have a change in the FEV1 to FVC ratio because both of these things are reduced in those conditions. Just to reiterate, FEV1 to FVC ratio in asthma and other obstructive processes will be reduced because the forced expiratory volume in one second is reduced. In restrictive processes, the FEV1 to FVC ratio doesn't change because both volumes are reduced. Okay, Faye, I think I threw out enough alphabet soup there to confuse everybody. <laughs> but let's bring it back home to what we really care about for our podcast. What things are changing in pregnancy and why do we care about asthma in pregnancy? Well, I think, you know, this seems really obvious, but oxygen is good for everybody. It's good for people who aren't pregnant and lo and behold, it's good for people that are pregnant and it's good for their fetuses. So the goal in asthma treatment is adequate oxygenation of the fetus and prevent hypoxic episodes in the pregnant person. And this is because we know that poorly controlled asthma can be associated with a lot of bad things like increased prematurity, need for cesarean section, preeclampsia, growth restriction, and other perinatal complications, and ultimately maternal morbidity and even mortality. Treating asthma during pregnancy is good overall, and we think that the benefits of asthma treatment outweigh any possible risks there are. I think the first thing that we should talk about is how do I classify asthma? And this is not different in pregnancy as outside of pregnancy. There's a great table from the practice bulletin, table one. And so we'll kind of go through these a little bit. So there are four levels of asthma severity. They include intermittent, there's mild persistent, moderate persistent, and severe persistent. And the way that you categorize these um, is based on essentially symptom frequency and also interference with normal activity. And then you can also look um, overall at the FEV1 or the peak flow, basically the predicted percentage of personal best of that. So in mild intermittent asthma, which is essentially well-controlled asthma, patients will have symptom frequencies two days per week or less, and will have nighttime awakenings twice per month or less. This is not going to interfere with their normal activity, and their FEV1 or peak flow is going to be more than 80% of their predicted personal best. So this is essentially where we want to get everybody. The next step is mild persistent asthma, basically not well-controlled asthma. And these patients are going to have symptoms more than two days per week, but not daily, and they may have more nighttime awakenings than twice per month, but not more than once per week. This will usually lead to some minor limitations in normal activity. However, their FEV1 or peak flow is still going to be more than 80% of their predicted personal best. We then start getting into things like moderate persistent asthma, where these patients may have daily symptoms, they're going to have more than weekly nighttime awakenings, and there is going to be actually some limitation to their normal activity, and their FEV1 or their peak flow is actually going to be affected to only 60 to 80% of their personal best. 
And finally, severe persistent asthma, which is very, very poorly controlled asthma, is basically going to be someone who has symptom frequency that occurs throughout the day. So more than once a day, they may have four times per week or more nighttime awakenings. They're extremely limited in their daily activities and their FEV1 or their peak flow is going to be less than 60% of their personal best. Knowing this now and knowing the classifications of asthma, Nick, talk to me a little bit about how we would treat asthma. I think kind of with other diseases that are caused by trigger things, similarly with asthma, you want to start just generally and easy. Number one, you want to avoid the things that precipitate the attacks if you can, things like allergens, smoke or pollen, pet dander, etc. Um, and then number two, I think important for us to remember is to stay humble with this. Now, if you feel like you're out of your range, particularly with a complex patient with asthma or you feel like there's overlapping pulmonary disease, um, get medicine involved or get pulmonary involved because this is their wheelhouse. They do this stuff day in and day out every day. That said, it's not an excuse for us OBs not to know about asthma medications um, because this is common enough to where we really should have a good understanding and how to do the step-up therapy. Um, so let's go through those categories again, Faye, and talk about the treatments. So first, mild intermittent asthma, as you mentioned, um, is probably the most common thing that you see and is pretty well controlled overall. Um, the recommendation here is just for albuterol inhaler or an emergency inhaler like that as needed um, and no need for daily medications. If you're stepping up to mild persistent asthma, again, with those symptoms that are happening more than two days a week, but not necessarily daily, you should add on low dose inhaled corticosteroids at that point. So the first step up from albuterol is a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid for mild persistent asthma. There are alternative agents um, at this point, things like chromalin, leukotriene receptor antagonists like Singular or Theophylline, um, but these are not necessarily the preferred first-line medications for mild persistent asthma. Once you get out of mild persistent, though, and you bump up to moderate persistent, so again, having those daily symptoms or nighttime awakenings more than once a week, at that point, you're going to add on a long-acting beta agonist, something like salmeterol, um, and you'll keep that with your low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, or potentially you may be bumping up to a medium-dose inhaled corticosteroid alongside that long-acting beta agonist. So again, we sort of in order here started with albuterol, then went to low dose inhaled corticosteroids, and now we're at moderate persistent asthma, adding on the long acting beta agonist and potentially increasing our steroid dose. Finally, if you're severe persistent asthma, you know, multiple symptoms, multiple night times awakening a week, you're going to be looking at high dose inhaled corticosteroids along with that salmeterol. Um, and potentially is needed in this category oral corticosteroids, stuff like prednisone, um, to help bring the asthma down in severity. And in terms of, you know, knowing what low-dose, medium-dose, and high-dose steroids are, um, we'll post uh, the table from the practice bulletin to kind of give you a sense. We're not going to go through all of that because basically it's just, you know, how many micrograms, how many puffs, things like that a day, um, which is not great for airtime. <laughs> Yeah, no, a little hard to say um, all these different steroids. I remember when we did the Volvar one and tried to go through the steroids. Um, but yeah, the website's a great resource, so check that out. I guess let's go on now. You know, one of the things that I remember from our residency training was like having somebody come into triage and they're like, 
hunched over, like, you know, trying in that tripod position, trying to, like, breathe. They tell you they got a history of asthma. What do you do in that situation to help keep this patient safe? Yeah. What you want to do is you're basically assessing someone who has an acute asthma exacerbation. And so you want to take a brief medical history and do a physical exam as you always do with somebody who's coming into your OB triage, you know, figuring out that yes, they have asthma, that, you know, they're having an exacerbation, listening to them, hearing those wheezes. But remember actually in patients who have really severe asthma, you may not hear wheezes because they're not going to have any air movement whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing is to, if you can, examine fetal well-being if they are after 24 weeks, so maybe putting them on the monitor at that point. And um, if you're able to do this, measuring their FEV1. So for example, someone who has an FEV1 measurement of greater than 70% for more than 60 minutes, those patients usually are doing well and can be discharged. Other things that you can be doing at this point is ordering things like a VBG if you want to get, for example, a blood gas and also kind of guiding you to in terms of what you want to do for that patient. So as a little bit of guidance here, you know, for patients who, like I said, have an FEV1 measurement of greater than 70%, those patients are the ones that are probably doing okay. And if they're consistently that way, they can probably be discharged home. Those patients that are kind of between 50% to 70% of their FEV1 probably require more treatment and evaluation in that emergency room. But if someone is dropping below their FEV1 less than 50% um, and they're consistently that way, that is somebody that I think, you know, may actually need to be admitted to the hospital. Similarly, if someone is becoming more drowsy, they have poor response, severe symptoms, confusion, or a um, PCO2 of greater than 42, these may actually all be reasons not just to admit them to the hospital, but actually get the ICU involved as well. So let's say you've kind of done these things, Nick, you know, you've seen your patient, you've done your exam, you've listened to them, you've drawn some of these labs. I think, you know, a lot of times in asthma, we don't have the time to wait for the labs to come back, right? It's always like, you know, you see them, you evaluate them, and then you've got to give medications. So what do we do? How do we treat these patients? First things first, you know, you got to have your airway and your breathing secured. So uh, I know we've talked about oxygen on the show before. This is an indication to put oxygen on a patient, especially if their saturation is below 95%. Again, you're trying to correct that true hypoxia that's going on. Um, The first thing that you can do, again, is to get a short-acting beta-2 agonist on board, either by nebulizer or by a meter dose inhaler. So something like albuterol um, or leave albuterol on board, again, to try and get those bronchioles reopened. If someone does not have good response to that, or if someone's like really in dire straits, getting corticosteroids on board is also a really good start. You can do oral systemic corticosteroids. Um, Again, if someone's really an extremist, then IV steroids are appropriate, but oral steroids usually are just fine. If someone has an FEV1 under 40%, you're going to have to hit them frequently and hit them hard with medications to try and get things better. So if they're under 40%, they're likely going to need high-dose inhaled short-acting beta-2 agonists along with ipratropium, and you're going to be giving them that by nebulizer every 20 minutes or continuously for an hour along with those steroids. And then finally, if someone's in such dire straits that they're impending respiratory arrests, um, hopefully you're not the doc around that's trying to make this decision, but start thinking about that intubation and mechanical ventilation. Um, Again, hopefully you as the OB are not the one trying to make that decision, 
but you should have your anesthesiologist, your crit care docs involved if you're thinking somebody is even close to that point. But let's think about for the best, Faye. Let's say that we had somebody come in and we got the, you know, short acting beta agonist with the ipratropium on board. They really responded well to that. They got some oral corticosteroids. And then finally, maybe after, you know, a couple hours in the triage area, they're like feeling a lot better and we're ready to send them home. Um, after this acute exacerbation, what are we going to send them home on and when do we need to follow them up? Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, the patient already has certain medications to help them with their asthma, but usually they sh can be placed on their short-acting inhaler two puffs every three to four hours as needed. If they are somebody who also uses a long-acting medication, definitely have them also use their long-acting medication as prescribed. And then after an acute asthma exacerbation, oftentimes patients are going to need oral corticosteroids at a higher dose. Um, usually, you know, prednisone 40 to 60 milligrams for anywhere between three to 10 days. You don't really need to taper them because they're only going to be on them for a short while. However, we do have to watch out for patients who, you know, when they come off those steroids, are they going to have another asthma, asthma exacerbation at that point? And so it's always important that you or some of someone who takes care of them for their asthma follows up with them within that week to check in on them. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our asthma in pregnancy episode. I feel like it's just an asthma episode because I don't feel like we treat it very much differently in pregnancy, but let's go ahead and uh, summarize. Sure. So asthma, again, is a bronchospasm disorder. So again, inflammation causes the bronchi to swell and narrow the airways, causing reversible recurring airway obstruction. This is associated with those classic symptoms, wheezing, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, coughing, um, and is often associated with triggers. Um, often this includes nighttime breathing difficulty, exacerbations with exercise, or with different allergens or irritants. The diagnosis is by pulmonary function tests, ideally, in addition to that history. You'll hear wheezes on auscultation, and then if you're the pulmonologist in the room, um, you're going to be looking at pulmonary function tests where you should see at least partially reversible airway obstruction on spirometry defined as a greater than 12% increase in the forced expiratory volume after one second, or FEV1. Remember, the normal FEV1 to forced vital capacity, or FVC, ratio is around 75%. Asthma is an obstructive process, so the FEV1 to FVC ratio is reduced. In other restrictive processes, this FEV1 to FVC ratio doesn't change because both are reduced. And that's the take-home point for your CREOGs if you're seeing those lung graphs. The reason we care about asthma in pregnancy is pretty much the same reason we care about it anywhere. It's just that oxygen is good for everybody and we don't want to make people hypoxic, especially in someone who is pregnant. You want to prevent them from becoming hypoxic so that they can have adequate oxygenation of their fetus. And we know that there are poor outcomes associated with poorly controlled asthma. So definitely keep your pregnant patients on their asthma medications and don't take them off. In terms of the classification of asthma, it's similar in pregnancy and out. We classify them via symptom frequency as well as peak flow um, predicted percentage of their personal best. So this is classified into um, mild intermittent asthma, mild persistent asthma, moderate persistent asthma, and severe persistent asthma. The step-up treatment for each of those categories of asthma goes again, starting with mild intermittent using just as-needed albuterol. At mild persistent, you add on a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. Moderate persistent asthma, you add on a long-acting beta agonist and potentially up your steroid dose to a medium dose. And then finally, with severe persistent asthma, you're upping your steroid dose to a high dose, 
keeping that long-acting beta agonist and potentially adding on an oral corticosteroid. On our website, we'll have a list of all the inhaled corticosteroids and those inhaler strengths, so that way you can reference that um, in treating your patients. In terms of assessment of acute asthma and treatment of acute asthma, make sure that you get a brief medical history and exam on your patient as always. Um, examine the fetus as well by putting them on the monitor, for example, if they're greater than 24 weeks, measuring the FEV1 in your patients, and then potentially also getting um, a venous blood gas if you have the time. However, as you know, um, with asthma with exacerbations, they can be quite acute and you can't really always wait for labs to come back before you treat the patients. So you should put them on oxygen so that they are in greater than 95%, give them inhaled short-acting beta-2 agonists by nebulizer or metered dose, or if they have an FEV1 that's less than 40%, they may need, again, that high-dose inhaled short-acting beta-2 agonist along with ipratropium by nebulizer continuously or every 20 minutes, um, and they should also be given a systemic corticosteroid. However, of course, if there is impending respiratory arrest, then you should talk to your ICU colleagues, your anesthesia colleagues, and consider intubation and mechanical ventilation. If your patient is gets better and is able to achieve greater than 70% of their FEV1 for more than 60 minutes, they can be discharged home, usually with instructions to take their short-acting inhaler as well as any long-acting inhalers that they have, and potentially a short course of oral prednisone for 40 to 60 milligrams for 3 to 10 days. All right, I think that does it. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, any of your favorite podcatchers, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee, on Facebook and Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee, or on our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. Send us some love. We'll send you some swag. You can find show notes for this show and every other episode on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And finally, if you have a question for us, a correction for this show or our prior episodes, or just want to say hello, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>